Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pod Jerky. I am your host, Tom, and I am joined today by Master Impressive as well, my co-host. On today's episode, we have a very special guest for you, Mr. Jack O'Halloran. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So today we're going to basically be talking about everything that's been uh, going on in your life. You have a pretty interesting story to tell. You got started in the boxing industry. Well, I actually started with football. That's right. Yes, I think on the Jets. It was at a time when you went to play ball, you couldn't play professionally until your class graduated college, which was, a, I think, still should be today because too many kids get in too young and get injured and stuff, you know? Their bodies haven't matured enough. You know, by the time my class graduated, I was up in the Jets organization. I was playing. They had like a farm team, and a lot of us played on that until we were eligible to play. So you're, you're considered in a professional football. You know, you're, you're already in a professional sport. And then Philadelphia had a great team and good friends of mine down there. And I told Eubank, I, I want to go down and, and take a shot in Philadelphia. And he said, well, you got a home here. So, I, But I did. And uh, Jerry Wallman had just bought the team as a young kid from Pennsylvania. And they hired a coach, Joku Hurricane. I watched this guy trade a championship football team away in a month, three, about three months. Traded Jergeson and McDonald and you know, just a bunch of great ballplayers. And I said, wow, this is not good. And um, Muhammad Ali had just won the title. So I said to some friends of mine in Philly, I said, you know, I could beat that guy. <laughs> and yeah. he said, you know, that's a good idea. Because I was a pretty tough kid in the street. You know, next thing I know, I'm uh, in the gym training to be a fighter. And uh, and I embarked on a professional career because I couldn't box amateur because I was already a professional athlete. So I just went right into the profession. And Did you start off in uh, California doing that? No, no, no. Philadelphia. I was born and raised in Philly. And uh, I started in Philadelphia, and I was, uh, I think I was like 5-0 and or 6-0 and in Philly. And there was a club in Philadelphia on Walnut Street that uh, Jerry Wallman owned the Sheraton Hotel, and I stayed there with, we had all had apartments there. So I was there with a couple of uh, ballplayers, and uh, we were the bouncers in this club. You know, it's like a night gig, you know. And a rhubarb happened, some trouble happened there, and the next thing I know, I get put on a train and sent up to Boston to get me out of town. So, because I was undefeated as a fighter, and they're looking at me as a protege to, in the heavyweight division. And so I wound up in Boston, Massachusetts, and I have a lot of dear friends up there. And about 1966, and Steve McQueen came in to do uh, the Thomas Crown Affair. And we watched over him while he was there, and he and I became very good friends, and he so oh, you got to come down and you know get in the movie business, and uh, I'll put you in the movie and you get you a side card to come to Hollywood. He said, "We'll have a ball, man." You know, because we we became pretty good friends. He, he, I really like Steve; he's a good kid. Does it seem like you had your path, your destiny already set out for you, and you were just participating in it? Because it just seems like you've gone from one amazing experience to another, to another, to another, and it's been like that throughout your whole life. Or am I just looking at it from a different point of view? I've been very fortunate in my life that, you know, God gave me a lot of talent to do certain things. And, and I had a, an epileptic background where my father was a, a notorious fellow from New York, and uh, mm -hmm. which put me around a lot of people that I could do whatever I wanted. You know what I mean? So I was playing in that world at night and doing sports during the day because 
it was a day job and you had to have a day job or you had a trouble with the law snipping down your shoulder. So boxing, um, I enjoyed it and it was, it was, and I was pretty good at it. And, uh, I had a lot of natural talent, but when I was about 16 and 0, they discovered in the physical that I had a disease called acromeglia, which is a tumor of the pituitary gland. And they didn't think I should be boxing at all. In fact, the doctor said to me, how do you do that? Because it causes a, a lot of depression and stuff. And, you know, I used to work my way through all that stuff. I just would never say no. And I just kept going. I just I said, I don't, you know, I don't want to hear that. You know, I, then I was my own worst enemy because I would take fights on a week's notice and stuff and in different cities and different people's backyards and all that stuff. So, you know, you're blowing decisions and stuff. But it didn't really bother me because I was doing other things at night that were more important to me in my father's world and stuff. And uh, I said, McQueen and I became friends and he used to call me on the phone. He said, oh, you got to come to Hollywood. I said, yeah. In 1969, I went to LA and I knocked out the uh, number two ranked heavyweight in the world, Manuel Ramos. And they came to me to do The Great White Hope with James Earl Jones. And I didn't realize till afterwards, it was all set up by Raymond Patriarca from Rhode Island, who was a very famous Don in the organized crime world. And, he wanted me off the streets, and he figured that was a great way to, I would go to Spain for six months, and it would be good, you know, out of sight, out of mind. And I said, you know, wow, man, I just knocked out the number two heavyweight in the world. I got a shot of fighting Ali, and, I, and you want me to go to Spain for six months? I don't think so. And the producer was, I thought you were just going to sign the contract. Blah, 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 blah. You know, so anyway, I turned that down, and that <laughs> was a funny story. I was leaving Fox, and James Earl Jones was just coming up the steps I was going down, and and he stopped me and he said, Jack Lowell. I said, yeah. I said, James Earl Jones. Yeah. I said, is it true what I just heard about you? I said, well, it depends on what you heard. And he said, you just told Hollywood, because it was the biggest movie in Hollywood at the time. You told Hollywood to take the biggest movie and stick it? I said, <laughs> I said, if you want to look at it that way. But I, and he said, i got to shake your hand. He said, I never met anybody that had done that before. And we became friends. And, uh, and of course, McQueen jumped all over me. Well, I said, you know, we got to get you out here. But I said, yeah, right. So I went on until 75. And I uh, it got to a point I had to retire from boxing. And, and they called me to do a film called Farewell, My Lovely with Robert Mitchum. Because I had a, an agent in San Diego. I was a California heavyweight champion in San Diego. And uh, I stayed, went out to fight Norton. I really kicked out of Norton. And they gave a hometown decision. And I, but I won the city and the town and, and went on a knockout of half a dozen people and beat a guy, Henry Clark, that nobody wanted to fight. Took the state title off him. And, and I was a world-ranked fighter for a lot of years, you know. And so I, uh, but in 75, this doctor in San Diego said to me, Jack, you know, you... You've got to go into scripts and get a workup. This disease is going to kill you if you don't do something about it. I'm telling you right now. And he, we were good friends. And he said, I'm going to pull your boxing license if you don't go. So I went. And sure enough, boy, you know, your normal body put out 10% growth hormone. Mine was putting out 150%, which is a draining process for your body, you know. So and they just couldn't believe that I was even fighting. And how do you do that? So I, which means if I had the stamina, I would have been incredible. If you kept fighting, would it be safe to say that the chance of death was a fairly good one? Yeah. That's pretty yeah. scary. Yeah. And I, so I, I went into scripts and they, they wanted to do a medical procedure, which took the gland, 85% of the medical procedure, took the glands out, which means I'd have been in hormone pills the rest of my life. And I said, I don't think so. So I got a hold of some friends of mine in New York and, and they steered me to a doctor up in Boston, uh, Mass General Raymond Schoberg, who was a pioneer 
in the, in the disease of acromegaly. And uh, they had a uh, psychotron proton machine up there, which is a laser that doesn't burn. It causes inner explosion of tumors. And so I went up there, and I and, and this guy was one of a thousand that first time out. It whack, it just knocked the thing out. And, and I can tell you how crazy I was. You know, I, uh, I had the thing done. I was supposed to stay in the hospital for uh, for a week because they bolt this machine to your head. And, you, you know, you got... Big, I had big scabs in four different places where they bolted this thing to hold you still while they hit you with the beam. And two days after the operation, I checked myself out of the hospital, went to Baltimore, Maryland, and put the number two guy down there, Larry Middleton, <laughs> which was kind of really dumb. And the doctor said, you did what? And I said, yeah, well, what the hell? Well, you know, when you're younger, you sort of have this, I guess, Superman mentality, if I can throw that one in there. And you think that nothing can touch you and you're not going to go down for the count. But from what I've been hearing about your story, you've always been one to take a stand, take some risks. You've said no plenty of times to some pretty big opportunities that I'm sure other people would have jumped at the chance to take on themselves. But in the end, you've come out looking pretty good, I'd say. Not too unscathed, I guess. You know, I... uh... In 75, when they offered me the, the, the film with Mitchum, I, I said, you know, maybe I'd give this a shot. And I, they flew me out to Hollywood, and I did a screen test, and Mitchum said, it's either him or I don't do the movie. And uh, he and I became amazingly great friends, and he was like a mentor. If you ever had to have a mentor in something, a person like Mitchum was just incredible. And he, uh, from the first day I ever went on a set, he just, you know, because I had never done a film before. And he was just incredible about the way he just he didn't tell me how to act as per se. He more or less taught me about the industry, about the people and stuff like that. And don't be nervous on set. I said, oh, I never got nervous in my life. I said, are oh, you crazy? So I, yeah. You know, what he said to me, I remember the first day we ever, first day we ever went to, he arranged for, they picked him up. Then they came to pick me up and we went to work together. And he just talked to me the whole time of going down to the set and, and we got dressed to go on the very first shot I was ever going to do. And, and he looked at me and he said, uh, you read that script, kid? And I said, read it. I said, I know your role, Charlotte Rampling's role, John Ireland's role, Harry Dean's that. I said, yeah, cover to cover. He said, good, throw it in the trash can. I said, what? He said, throw it in the trash can and don't let me catch you doing what thousands of people do out here, acting. He said, just be yourself. He said, take that character and put yourself in it and walk down the street like you. He said, you've been a gangster all your life. He knew a lot about me. He said, just be you. That's all. He said, and we'll have a lot of fun. And, you know, it just worked out like, and he taught me the technical aspects of looking right through the camera and taking an eye mark and and stuff like that. And and he told me something that was very profound, And you know, because I asked him what this definition of star was, bullshit, because when we first did our very first shot and they were moving the cameras and stuff like that, and and I looked at him, I said, What's the deal here? What are they doing? He said, you really don't know. I said, I'm asking you a question. He said, that's it, kid. I said, that's all there is to this? He said, that's the whole enchilada. <laughs> I said, well, man, I'm a star. you know. <laughs> and, he, and he laughed, and that became a tagline during the movie. And, he, and he, I asked him what the definition of a star was, and he said, it's a word called presence. Some people just are born with it. You can't teach that to anybody. The camera either loves you or it doesn't. Absolutely. And I was very fortunate. The camera just happened to love me. And, uh, I never looked at the camera. I looked right through it. And it can't find you. You know, if you, if you have that presence, the camera seeks you out. I don't yes. know how to explain that, but that's that's a reality, you know. 
No, for example, it's just yeah. like that special quality. It's just like this vibe that comes off the actor or the athlete or whoever the media personality is. You know, that's something that they have that just puts yeah, them up above right. and beyond everybody else. Yeah, to me, you, said, you know, like you, you watch a Marlon Brando picture. And, and you'll come out of the movie and say, boy, wasn't Marlon great at this or great at that? And it doesn't make a difference what character he's playing. It's Marlon Brando, you know, or, or it's Robert Mitchum or it's Gregory Peck. And then you'll see a picture with a guy like Bill Holden in it. And you'll come out and say, boy, he really did this really well. What was his name? You know, that it's that presence that some That's people right. have. Yeah. You just like, you know, the camera just picks it up. It like it either loves you or it doesn't. And like I said, I was kind of fortunate that I just... The camera kind of liked me, you know, and Farewell was a, it was a great film. It turned out very well. Of course, at the end, they didn't have, the distributor didn't really have the oomph to put it across the way they should have, uh, but it became a classic film. And I made the first mistake in my Hollywood career was that uh, Mitchum had put together a meeting with myself and Johnny Carson at the Polo Labs. I'll never forget it. I went over to meet him. And uh, he said to me, if you do my show, I'll get you nominated for Supporting Actor, which was a good shot that you're winning it, you know, and because uh, the film really came out very well. I don't know if you've ever seen Farewell, My Lovely, but it's actually quite a good movie. I didn't go on the show. I was at the meeting and I said to him, I sat there and I said, your show is, is live, isn't it? And he said, yeah. He said, yeah, we do everything live. He said, uh, I said, I, I don't think I can do it. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well. I'm going to come on your show and you're going to ask me about my father and I'm going to ask you where the men's room's at. He said, you would get up and leave? I said, yeah, because right? I don't talk about my father and I don't want anybody else talking about him and it's just my own private world. And he said, <laughs> he said that's unbelievable. He said, well, he said, we'll, we'll adjust the questions and make sure we don't. And I said, John, no disrespect. I said, you know, but you're the number one key reporter in, 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 in the world right now. Television. I said, and you have Albert Anastasia's son on your set, and you're not going to ask me any questions about my father. I said, come on, man. Was it the movie Farewell that your driver that picked you up was actually Jerry Bruckheimer? Was it for that film? When your test screen was, came? It was Bruckheimer's uh, second film. He was uh, the producer with uh, Jer Jerry Pappas and Elliot uh, Kastner. Elliot Kastner was a per tremendous producer. He did more pictures with Brando than anybody, and he, it was his movie. And Jerry was, uh, Jerry was making his name. Jerry was a was the second movie he ever did with Dick Richards. Dick Richards was the director, and he had did one other film with Dick. And you know they they were in that commercial world together. Dick Richards was a famous TV commercial uh, born into films. He's the guy that invented that uh, meatball thing, uh, spicy spicy meatballs. You know uh, that was his deal. But, uh, so it was it was Jerry's Jerry's second film. Yeah, Jerry's a good kid. He was a producer. Yeah, he's gone on to do some really big stuff, right? Oh, he's become huge. Jerry's, yeah. Jerry's huge. He's, you know, he's, he's going to his own world. And he's, and he's very clever. He's, you know, he's, he's a good kid. He's a, I haven't seen him for a while, but we got on. We did that picture, and then we did March or Die together, which was another uh, L.A. Kastner picture with Sir Lou Grade. So, I, you know, I, I didn't do the Carson show, and, and Mitchum called me on the phone. He said, what is wrong with you, son? He said, you know, Hollywood doesn't care about all your background or where you They eat that up. He said, they love that. They said, it would have been great. He said, are you kidding me? Probably would have got you the Oscar. And I'd never thought about it. I just didn't, I, you know, it was a, a dumb move. And then I, they came to me to do King Kong, and uh, King Kong was a great film and a great cast. And 
Um, and then I did a picture called March or Die. And when I was doing March or Die, they came to me to do the Bond movie. Cubby Broccoli flew over from uh, from England to, to meet me and, uh, and offered me the Bond movie. And, and I was sitting around the corner having lunch with Mitch. It was his birthday. And we were, you know, getting buzzed up. And he, I said, these guys are waiting around the corner, my agent's office, and I, I should go around and see them. He said, did you like the script? I said, no. He said, then what are you, are you going to do it? I said, I don't think so. He said, then don't. He said, don't worry about it. So I said, well, out of respect, I should go around and say hello to the guy. And so I did. And I told him, I said, well, I'm already doing a film called March or Die, and I don't know if we can get out of it or whatever. And my, my my agent was Meyer Michigan. I said, Meyer, you, you have to talk to these people. I said, nice meeting you. Thanks for coming to see me. And I left. And I went back <laughs> on the corner with Mitchell. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. So they, they, they were intrigued. They wanted me worse than then. They really came after me. They wanted me to do this film. And while I was doing Watch or Die, Richard Donner sent me a script for Superman. And uh, and Gene Hackman and I were doing March or Die together down in Spain, and they flew us up to London to sit down with Donner. And uh, and uh, Donner and I had a great conversation. You know, and he, he said, uh, we really would like you to do this character. And well, what do you think about playing uh, a guy uh, that's a mute? And I said, uh, to be honest with you, I really embraced that. He said, what? I said, well, Jackie Gleason was a friend of mine, and he did a picture called Gigo where he won an Oscar for playing a deaf, dumb mute. And he did a great job because it was body language and facial language and stuff like that. And I said, if I ever get a chance to do a character like that, I'm going to jump at it. And I, I would really like to do it. And I said, because I said, you know, uh, we, we got into talking about the character because Nan was a, a genius scientist that they lobotomized as a penance to him. And uh, I said, you know, you have Turn Stamp, who's a vicious general, and then you have Sarah, who's a man-eater. And I said, somebody's got to relate to the kids. This is a child picture for big audiences. I said, so I'm going to take this big, brutish guy, and I'm going to play him like a child. You know, and he said, wow, what a great idea. And I said, you know, I said, I'll be hard working my eyes and stuff like that. And I said, like a real child mannerism. And evidently, we did it pretty well because it came off pretty good. Yeah, I would say so. That movie was pretty big. And I got to say that you, Terrence, and Sarah. So it was Terrence Stamp, who was Zod, and Sarah Douglas. Oh, I think it was Ursa, if I'm yeah, Ursa, correct. correct. Those British actors and the whole cast of that movie was just like oh, through the roof. You couldn't believe the people. Just I mean, amazing. Trevor Howard. I mean, all the judges that were when we did the scene, guilty, 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 you know. All those judges were stalwart actors of, of Europe. I mean, it's just that they had an incredible cast. They couldn't believe it. And working with Brando, Brando was uh, Brando, and I got on extremely well because he's a New Yorker. He knew my father. He couldn't wait to meet me. You know, Mitchum said to me, "Go down to the set and see him when he first comes over, and tell him I said hello." And blah blah blah. And I went down to the set that day because we were all the first eleven days of filming were on Brando, so they could get the money to do the picture. And I went down to see him say hello, and uh, and he was surrounded by reporters. He saw me, just broke through everybody. Go, hey, kid, I want to die in the meeting. And we became pretty good friends. And, you know, to work with people like that, you know, you learn so much. You know, they, they just uh, the presence that Brando had was incredible. God, he walked on the set, you could hear a pin drop. 
Yeah. Working with all those professionals, the whole atmosphere must have been just fantastic. It's really hard for us to understand because, you know, when you're on the outside looking in, you don't really get to see all the behind the scenes interaction between the actors, the producers, the big stars. And at the end of the day, outside of how much money you have and how much fame, everybody's just a human being, right? So it must well, have been cool to build these relationships. And the older actors really had uh, the game together a lot better than some of these young kids today. And, you know, and uh, Terrence, Terrence Stamp was a huge actor. Terrence was one of the greatest English actors ever come out of England. I mean, when he was a kid, he was unbelievable. I mean, he was one of the best looking kids in Hollywood. And he, and he, he just he, he had a great talent. And he got uh, wayward with uh, sex, drugs and rock and roll. His brother was uh, had a, a singing group called The Who. And so Terrence got caught up in all that stuff. And then he went to India and he got rothed and, and he became very spiritual. And Superman was the first movie he did after he went through all that. In fact, they had to go down to India to find him. And he was like a much calmer version of the young Terrence Stamp. And, and he was, but he was so talented. I mean, it was great working with him. You know, he, he just, uh, and Sarah was young and she, but she was, you could see that she had, the industry in her blood and she was going to become uh, a, a star you know she was a she's just a super kid and, and i love sarah sarah's a very dear friend i saw an interview of her and i think they had tom baker <laughs> at one point this was a couple of years back and boy she was a firecracker <laughs> in that interview sarah <laughs> sarah's a lot of fun she's a trip she really yeah is. absolutely she's just a real she it's just in her blood she's she's just a good person and, and we had, and then you had Valerie Perrine and, you know, and, and Hackman and I, that was another picture we worked with Hackman and, and Gene's a, a methodical, you know, actor, you know, he's a, a super individual, he just, but he's so, he's so right on, you know, and so professional that, uh, and I had just done March or Die with him. So, you know, the ambiance is already there. And so, I, but the crew is. Everything worked so well on Superman, and you knew that it was going to be an amazing film. Because we broke a lot of technical rules. We, we set a lot of precedents when we did it. The flying shots and, and the fight scenes over the, over the city were all done without wires. There was no CGI. And we shot this division on this division, which is the technology that they're coming out with today that they're blowing people away with. These guys had started that back in the 70s, and it was a very tedious to do at the time but we it worked really well i mean people look at superman 2 and they see the fights they say wow man how'd you guys do that flying under bridges around buildings and, and stuff like that and it wasn't cgi it was very very real realistic you know can you go into detail a little bit about the vista vision because i don't think a lot of people are aware of that they had like a big 70 foot screen and then three pole arms that come out of it with a body mold that we laid in and they dressed us over this body mold and, and the movie was behind us and they we had motions that we could do where we could dip and turn and, and stuff like that and, and they shot us into the movie in other words they filmed us doing our movements into the film that was behind us so it made us look like we were shooting it all at one time and just you know it was just incredible i mean it, it took a long time to, to perfect it down but it, it worked tremendously it was different so I guess they had the cameras on the same plane as you in front of you. So that, for example, if you dipped, the camera would be at the same angle as you guys were moving and things yeah, like that. Yeah. The, the, the setup that these guys had was incredible. I mean, they had like six cameras, you know, of every angle that you could think of, you know. And uh, 
and and they had this they, they had the film the background was all behind us and on this big screen and they just shot us into the film and it was uh it was called vista vision on vista vision and they had a name for it and and if the salt kinds hadn't bankrupt those guys company boy they would have been the future of hollywood because there was no cgi we didn't do anything cgi in that picture and, and you could tell you could tell the difference Myself and even Tom, we're really into the tech and we appreciate the technical aspects that go into the work, into the production. Knowing about how the whole movie is built and how everybody's working together and the whole process of the mechanism, I think that's really cool as well. And there's a lot of tech heads out there who would like to hear about that too, so it's great. They brought this thing to a head recently, and they have it down in New Zealand at a soundstage where you'll never have to go out on location again. You're shooting LED. They have an LED setup, any background, and we were getting into that with holograms and stuff. And Because uh, I, I already have a, a screenplay to bring Christopher back and the three villains back, and uh, we have a storyline that's monstrous that uh, we, we unite with, where we get taken out of jail and we unite with Superman. And Superman has his own little army now, you know, but our whole mental thought changes and stuff. Another sister planet that has a technology that does all this, and it uh, it would be a monster picture. I mean, to bring Christopher Reeve back on the screen again, my God, people would go bananas. And this is a screenplay that you're working on now? I already have it pretty much done. We're just uh, waiting for the AT&T Warner Brothers deal to resolve uh, so that we can go to them because they're getting their butts kicked by Marvel with all this junk that's being done. And this would just bring Warner Brothers right back up to the top again. It would be a huge, huge movie. And you could do sequels right down the street. And we would go back and do Superman the way we did it, with the all-American way, and, and not all this killing and, and stuff of, of Superman killing. Superman never killed anybody in our pictures. You know, it was always doing things lawfully and stuff, and locking people up and things of that nature. So... Uh, according to the way society's rules should work, you know what I mean? And they've gotten everything going darker and darker and darker, and the stories that they're telling, just uh, every superhero is menacing now. They're killing people and stuff like that. So, you know, and, and you have to understand that Superman was the very first American superhero. So why take America? Why why change that? You know, they, they took the way out. They, they changed a lot of things, and it just... Uh, Kind of foolish, I thought, you know. So we have this idea of doing this and bringing Chris back and bringing everybody back, Brando and everybody. And it would be dynamic, you know, just be, wow. We'd go through the ceiling and we put viewers out there, what the fan base would think about it. They said, oh, my God, when, 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 when are we going to do this? And what do you think the realistic chances are of this actually seeing the light of day in the next little while? I think that in, within a year. We could probably, because we're building, uh, we're in the middle right now of getting ready to build a 4 million square foot studio in Nevada, which will be the biggest studio in the history of the industry. And something that should have been done a while ago, you know, to put everything under one roof, every bit of technology under one roof for both film, television, music, anything that you can think technically, every every technology to have it all under one roof. Put a water body there like we did Superman in London because of the 007 stage. There wasn't a big enough stage in, in Hollywood to do it. Mm. And there's no water tank today. The water tank that they had here was in Baja that, that Cameron put down there when he did the Titanic. And that's gone. You know, so they have to look for places to do water shots and stuff like that. And to put everything under one roof and then build a smart city next to it that'll hold 30,000 people 
because you'll have 20,000 or so employees and, and only have to go 15 minutes to work rather than hours each way, traffic-wise and everything. You know, like I live in Redondo Beach. If I'm going to do a picture at Warner Brothers, I've got an hour and a half, maybe two hours to get to work because of traffic. And wow. then same yeah. coming home again, you know. So usually what actors will do, they'll take an apartment, uh, you know, somewhere in Burbank or something like that. Because But you're away from your home, you know. So there's a lot of things. That, and there's the technicians have moved inland because it's cheaper. But they have to travel a hell of a distance every day to go to work. So if you want to make things cost effective, and that's what this is all about. I mean, this new technology where you never have to go on location again and you can shoot everything in one spot, you're going to save a lot of money production-wise. You're going to have better production. You have people only driving 15 minutes to work so their mind is on their job, not the stress of all the traffic and what they had to go through. You know, so you're making life a lot simpler, which means you're going to be much more cost-effective. And what we're doing is we're putting in like 110 NC-25 soundproof sound stages. Nobody in the world has that. And what you're talking about by NC-25 soundproof, in other words, you're not going to be in the middle of shooting maybe an Oscar scene and the camera guy, oops, wait a minute, got to shoot it again. I heard a noise come up through the camera because of some truck vibration in the street or some plane going over or some noise that goes that the vibration the camera picks up. You can filter all that out. So you're saving a fortune on reshooting and stuff. And that costs a lot of money to do all that, you know. So you're saving production costs across the board. And we were going to build a studio in L.A. in in 208, but the financial world fell apart. We had all the money. We had all ready to go. We had a great building, great location in Long Beach. It was a a Boeing plant building that they built planes. So the ground was there to to carry 900,000 pounds of weight. So the density was there to, to filter out everything. It was just ideal. And it was a great idea. And, and the financial world fell apart. So we put a lot of planning into doing this and to uh, building a studio that sufficed for the entire industry. And the more you, the time went by and, and technology has evolved and, and you had to do something that you know every six months or so, somebody's going to come up with another gimmick or another bit of technology that's going to better the industry. They, this hologram thing is brilliant. I mean, you, I can bring Christopher Reed back and you'll swear he's in that film and you'll think he's alive. I mean, they've done it with different Michael Jackson. They've proven that it will work. Philip Seymour Hoffman died halfway through his last picture and they used holograms and he finished the picture and you would swear he was there. So yeah. is it doable? Absolutely doable. The technology has come quite a long ways. And even I'm not sure if you're aware with how they're shooting the Mandalorian right now with Disney. The setup that they have is crazy. They're actually using, I think, a technology based on a 3D game engine. I think it's Unreal Engine. And they have this sort of this shooting stage and it's all basically projected all these LCDs. And they have this actor or these actors in a scene just in the middle of this area and actually if they pan the camera the whole scene pans behind them with the camera so it That's looks the like they're actually we're talking about that it's, it's amazing new zealand really big time because new zealand's wide open right now and you can film down there so we're going to have a dozen stages equipped with all that equipment in our new studio and also a dozen stages that's equipped with with a hologram situation so there's, there's technologies that you'll never 
have to go on location again. And we'll put, we're, we have 2,000 acres that are being given to us by the University of Nevada right outside of Vegas. And we're going to put a couple back lots like old Hollywood had. So you'll, you'll be able to do films of $50,000 up to $500,000. Know, so everybody will have a home. It's for everyone to be able to work. And, and then you have students. What we're doing with the university, the deal we made with the university is that every student that's involved in technology or involved in film directing or filmmaking or anything to do with the industry, every one of those students will intern on our lot. And every hour they intern will go towards their union guards. So they'll be full-fledged union members by the time they graduate school, which is unheard of. And any project that they have for the school, we'll give them the space to do it on the set at very professionally. You know what I'm saying? It'll make the university's film department like go way, way past USC and everybody else. It'll be, it'll be phenomenal for them. And, and so it's a, a, you know, one hand helping the other out. And then we've got a tax deal that we put together in Nevada that will be a 45% tax deal. For films, every production company in the world will shoot. And we're not doing a tax deal taxing the state of Nevada to say, take it off your budget and give us 45%. We're doing what you call a tax rateable deal, which means that the revenue stream we bring into the state, we take a portion of the taxation off of it. So it doesn't tax the state at all. You know, it just enhances what's going on because you're going to have great product being done in the state of Nevada. And that'll all go up on every screen around the world every time they do where it was location, you know. So it'll put a precedence and, you know, probably surpass any gaming or anything else that they ever did revenue-wise for, for the state itself. It'll be brilliant for the state of Nevada. So it's going to work out really well across the board for everybody. Well, i got to tell you, just listening to you tell us all this, this is fantastic stuff. I just find this so interesting. Tom, did you want to cut in? Do you have any questions? I don't want to hijack the yeah. whole thing. No, no. Um, I don't think that people actually realize oh, what goes on behind the scenes of actually watching or making a movie. I know with us because we're just a little part of the editing process with doing podcasts and how much work goes into that. And I don't think people actually appreciate all the stuff that is going on behind the scenes in uh, movie making as well. And your project there that's at the studio that you're going to start working on there, it sounds phenomenal. Well, the beauty of it is we're going to build it out of industrial hemp, which is going to be the revolutionary product for building. You know, it's uh, it's incredible material. It's stronger than concrete and steel. You have no steel involved at all. And, and if you build the building, it's like, I'll give you an example. If I build a 1,200-square-foot home, two-bedroom, two-bath, and the whole house, inlaid furniture, inlaid tile, can all be made out of hemp, and the whole place be built in two weeks, and for a cost factor wow. of $1,000, of twenty grand to build that house, all right? 1,200-square-foot home. So, But the beauty is the temperature inside that house will stay 69 to 72 constantly, and the air is cleaner. This material is unbelievable. And it's going to revolutionize construction to build what we're going to build in the studio in a smart city. All out of that material will show, will be a showcase beyond belief. You understand? And, and, and hemp is being legally grown everywhere now. Industrial hemp. Is it marijuana? That's where they get the flowers for the oil, CB oil. But the stalks, they throw away. Well, we take those stalks and we turn it into this material and you pour it just like concrete. You know, and it's just what it, it sets quicker and you're building faster and it's going to be phenomenal.
this whole project, which we're about ready to do, would have been already done had this pandemic jazz, you know, not interfered with business in the world, you know, and, but uh, that's going to end with the election. So we're going to take a quick break to show some love to another podcast. Every 73 seconds, someone is sexually assaulted in the United States. We are here to tell you, you are not alone. Blackbird, an advocacy podcast, tells the stories of victims and survivors of true crime with a focus on the support these survivors need. We provide information for those who have endured trauma and for those who love someone who has. Tune in every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to hear these stories of hope, survival, and empowerment. No one should go through this alone. We believe you. That was Sarah from Blackbird, an advocacy podcast. Make sure you tune in and hit that subscribe button. Let me just cut in for a second and ask, how are you doing with the pandemic, your health, you know, how you're coping with the situation there on your end? Well, health-wise, I'm fine. I mean, I, I think this is a bunch of, I mean, is there a virus? Yes, there's a virus. Do they have a cure for it? Yes, they do. Uh, and, and it's being, there's more doctors coming out that are really phenomenal doctors that are coming public and telling that this is not uh, an incurable disease, that they have uh, antibiotics and stuff that they, they've cured. They have, there's a couple of doctors come out and say, I had 350 patients and every one of them are walking around. You know, there's no death factor. And, you know, and, and you have to get into this was started back in the Obama presidency where they, they actually developed this stuff and they developed this and they put it out purposely. This is there's more people are going to find out there's more to this than what's what's all going on. This is this is affecting the economy of America. They're trying to make us a socialistic country. I don't care what anybody says. They, they're trying to make this socialized country, which means they're taking your freedom away. So Americans better get their head out of their ass and stand up and be counted. They can talk all the garbage they want about Donald Trump. But, you know, let's look at a couple of real realistic things. Donald Trump has taken the presidency job and he gets a salary of $1 a year, okay? He's not bleeding it like every other person has done. Obama and all the rest, they became multimillionaires being presidents of the United States. Trump, it's cost him $2 billion of his own revenue stream. And he's not, he's not bleeding the country money-wise. He's trying to bring jobs and stuff back into the country. Maybe he has quirky attitudes about certain things, and, which are really being taken out of bounds because who was more of a womanizer than Jack Kennedy? Or Clinton himself. That's right. Nobody's talking or bringing all the past up and a different thing. We haven't had a great president since Reagan. You know, at least is bringing jobs back. I mean, one of the things that got me, and I've known Donald a lot of years. And yes, okay, he's, he's a silver spoon kid and stuff like that. But, but he took his own money and did his own campaign. He didn't tax the people. You understand? And nobody's looking at what he's done for the people of the country, period. And, you know, what really got me so was he was before he became president, he was in a meeting with all the auto industry guys and Michael Moore, crazy Michael Moore was there. And uh, Donald got up in the middle of the meeting and said, gentlemen, let me tell you something. You move one more building out of this country into another country to build something outside the country. Every automobile you bring in here, I will put a 35 percent tariff on and their faces hit the floor because Obama gave them billions of dollars. And then they turned around and took the industry and moved it to China. They took it and moved it out of the country. And these guys looked at him dumbfounded. And Michael Moore jumped up and said, you just got my vote, son. Shit. You know? 
the same thing happened here as well, where we had our auto industry and it's just outside where we are a little ways uh, outside of Toronto. But basically, the government was giving taxpayer money to the auto industry. And basically, they said, okay, well, you know what, now we're just going to shut everything down. And we're selling all our stuff in China anyway. So who cares? Well, look at everybody- the state of Michigan. Now just sit still for a second and say, try to buy a refrigerator in a store today. Go to the store and try and buy an appliance, a washing machine, a refrigerator. You cannot get your hands on one because they're all made in China and nothing's coming out of China right now. And even the parts. I have a a refrigerator. It was only like a year or two old and it went fluky. So we say, well, bring it out and swap it. And well, we don't have a swap. What are you talking about? We don't have any new refrigerators is what the store is a major store. And a major appliance name, you understand me? Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we just don't, we, they're all made in China and nothing's coming over. And I said, well, how about fixing it? Well, the parts have to come from there as well. You know, so they've got us hogtied, washing and, machines, and- televisions, everything's made in China. They took all the industry out of this country and they moved it. Well, that took away a lot of jobs. And what Donald was trying to do is bring that back, create industry again, open up the job market. <laughs> Places for kids to go after school. Not everybody is a genius that can graduate college and do certain things. You still have workforces of of technical aspects of mechanics and people building things and putting things together. You know, blue collar working jobs are still a part of your economy. You know, it's just like when he's talking about building a wall and all that stuff. I said they should have shut the borders of America 30 years ago, you know, because when my father and the Italian people came into the country or the Germans or the Irish, whoever came into the country in the 20s, and they wanted to be Americans. They wanted this culture. They wanted the freedom that we had. The fact that they could go out and and make a fortune was beyond their imagination. They used to think that the streets of America were paved in gold, and they certainly weren't. Everybody struggled and did their chores, but you could progress. You could come from nothing to a lot because the opportunities were there. You understand? These Mm -hmm. people coming into this country today are bleeding the country. They don't want to work. They're getting college education, cell phones. Everything's handed to them. And yet you have people who are born here who don't have those privileges. So somebody's got to wake up and look and start smelling the roses here. You know, they're taking away your national freedom if you allow them. I mean, look what Obama did. Took away God out of schools. Tried to change the national anthem. They took things away that our country stand in our constitution is there. And they took it away from us. Look at the relationship between Canada and America, how strained that became. And it was a great relationship. I mean, the film industry flourished up in on the western side of Canada because it was a great tax deal there. There were great advantages of coming to Canada and going to work. Look at how Toronto, I mean, the guy, Gary Metting, who did the special effects on Superman, opened up a special effects shop in Toronto and it boomed. The film industry boomed in Toronto. Company up there now that I deal with AMG, and they're brilliant. You know, they're they're just great people. Do you remember what the name of that studio was called that he opened up here in Toronto? I had to really stop and think. When he won the Oscar for special effects, he took that technology into Toronto, and he opened up, and that's where they did a lot of pictures with his technology to expand it. It opened up the film market in Toronto. You have E-Entertainment over there that did animated thing that made billions of dollars. They're one of the biggest distributors that you can go to to distribute a picture worldwide. These guys have 
they, they've created a billion dollar business off of animation. And now they're doing film and they're getting into, uh, you know, and you have so many streaming outlets for film today and stuff. And, and you go through and there's great tax deals. If you go to Canada properly in, in different areas where there's building the economy, anywhere mm-hmm. you do things, you're putting money into the economy. That's and right. Building jobs in certain areas that there are no jobs and they and it creates things, you know. And that's and that hand in hand stuff should have been going on, and it's been severed. There's there's so many things that, that bum relationships because of idiots. You know, understand me? You know, it's funny that you're bringing that up because outside of this conversation, I don't even think it comes out in regular everyday conversation. Media just hides it. You know, like I, sure. I'm doing business with Rob Carboni. He was going to be your next prime minister up there. What a super guy he is. I mean, he's got such expectations of the things to do for Canada. There's a new party, the Republican Party up in Canada there. And Rob Carbone, you know, he's a, he's a financial wizard, this guy. And he's stepping aside from his financial companies and just dedicating himself to politics for the betterment of Canada and to open the relationships between Canada and America again and to build certain things back into Canada. You know, it's just it's incredible. And I hope when the election comes up up there that this guy wins hands down. I'll tell you something, I, I like him a lot. Very straightforward, very honest guy. He's, uh, I think he's going to be a great asset. I don't know, do you know who Rob Corbone is? We have no idea who that is, actually. Go to Rob Carbone, C-A-R-B-O-N-E dot com, and you'll see his whole history right there, boy. He's your next prime minister up there. We've had a few people consider running for, let's say, the conservative party here. It was one of the guys from the Sharks Den. Tom, do you remember who that was? Uh, don't I can't the name. I know, Any, I know exactly who you're talking about. Yes, but so I it's this uh, big business guy. He has a lot of cash. He's pretty well rounded. He's educated. He knows what makes Canada run, and he knows the business side of things creates a better economy, which leads to more jobs, more security, and things like that. But he pulled out at the end for whatever reason. And right now here in Canada, it's just a complete shit show with the politics. Believe me, a lot of people think that the situation here is so much greater than the states. Uh, not really. Oh, I know. I do a lot of business up there, and I know I have a lot of friends up there, and and I see the turmoil going around on both sides in Canada, in America, and it's just, they're just trying to, I mean, this new world order. Exactly. Socializing everybody is just, I mean, that's, they're talking about running the whole show and letting the wealthy people sit up here and putting everybody on puppet strings like socialism. And I don't know if you've ever been to countries where socialism is predominant, but you have no freedom. I mean, you're, you're just a puppet. All people have to do is perhaps look at Venezuela. That's a very good example of um, Venezuela. Really, a couple of years back, it was doing really well. And then what happened is the socialists got in and then the country went to hell. Now there's no food, no medicine, no nothing. Everybody's in jail. Everybody's lost all their rights. Tyranny, fascism, the worst of the worst. Yeah. How that to happen in your country. Next thing you know, that's what happens to you. Your rights are taken away from you. You're an object of the government. That's it. You take what they give you, and if you don't like it, then, you know, you're going to jail. That's right. Whatever you got. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. And I tell people in this country, you better open your eyes and wake up. Because, you know, coming from where I come from in my world, okay, like, and I wrote a great book called Tommy Legacy that we're getting ready to do into a miniseries. And we got three more books, and and I have Charlie Luciano's book, and we're going to integrate that and and tell how things changed in this country. And I'm going to tell the truth, because I lived it. No one can tell me that it didn't happen. You understand? I was in Dallas the day Kennedy guy, and I know why. And we're going to tell the truth about that. You know, the, my first book is 
goes from my father's death to Kennedy's death. And I tell the truth about the Kennedy assassination. I don't care what people think. It's going to be told. And it should be told. You know. Do we have a time frame as to when all this is going to be coming out? We're in the midst of right now putting together the final pieces to, to shoot this. Okay, cool. We're uh, just putting together the financial. We were going to do a movie, but there's too much information. So we're going to do a miniseries that'll spin into a series. And the series will make The Sopranos and Boardwalk Empire look like child's games. <laughs> we're, we're going to tell the truth yeah. about a lot of things, you know. And, and I know a lot about the organized crime fashion of Canada because the Magnadinos in Buffalo were relatives of mine. And, and they reached all the way up into Ontario, you know. And it, so there was a lot of things that went across that border especially in Detroit, into Canada, you know, back in the old days of the 40s and 50s, you know, they, there was a lot of business that went on up there. And, uh, and there's a lot of truisms that help both countries. And, you know, so like people ask me, they say, well, what's different? When I was a kid growing up in Philadelphia and we lived in a row home in southwest Philadelphia, we never locked our front door. Children played in the streets from sunup to sundown. And at six o'clock, you better be at dinner table. Families sat down and ate dinner together, and your families looked you eyeball to eyeball. They knew whether you were doing some kind of stupid drugs and shit like that. You know, it was a whole different, and there was no drive-by shootings. And neighborhoods were run by certain people, and they looked after their neighborhoods because that was their income. You know, so yeah. the whole, and I watched the changes that happened. You know, when people used to bet numbers years ago, they wake up in the morning with a dream and bet a number, pay a quarter or 50 cents or something. And the odds of them hitting that number were a thousand to one. So a lot of people won. They maybe won $50 or $100, but that was extra money that they bought a gift for their family or shoes for their kids or a bicycle. You know what I mean? They mm -hmm. wanted people to win because it meant more people would play the numbers. And then when they come in with the lottery, you know what the odds of you winning the lottery are? 25 million to one. Yeah, it's astronomical. And I still think that the winners are rigged because if you look at all the winners that have won this big, multi-million dollars of things, within three years they're broke because mm -hmm. the vultures come in and start pulling this way and that way. Because people don't know how to handle that kind of money. Well, I remember here they used to have the lottery number. So they used to have the machine and it was actually live. So they had the machine spinning and they would spit out the balls and then they would show the ball That's with right. the number right. at the screen. But then they got rid of that. And yeah. now it's just it's all computerized and this yeah. and that and this yeah. and that. And actually, there was a story not too long ago. Sorry, Tom, I'm taking this off the rails a bit. No, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> but there was a story not too long ago where they were sort of rigging the stats. And these uh, independent news outlet was going to the government and saying, what are you guys doing here? You guys are adding a number. You're screwing around with the odds and you're not telling the people the truth. And so basically this is fraud. And, you know, everybody ran from the camera. They called the police on them. You know, you're trespassing. What you don't know won't hurt you. You can go away now. We're not answering any of your questions. Believe me, I totally get what you're saying and where you're coming from. We're not that old. We're not that young. So we still understand your way of thinking how back in the day it was a lot better. Simpler times, more honesty in a lot of ways. Of course, there was crime and there's corruption, but well, it's, it's just off the scale now. Here's the difference, you know, and I'm going to depict this in this book. You know, back in 1900, when everybody came into the country, different uh, nationalities and everything, and, and they all had their little gimmicks of how they made money and stuff. And, and the Italians, uh, the, what you call the mafia, they made their money off of loan sharking, extortion and gambling. OK, yeah. and they took that illicit money and they put it back into the growth of a country, because if you didn't have a job, how could you pay them if you owed the money? 
You understand? Mm-hmm. My father ran the waterfront. Their unions were all all owned by the mob, the, the construction companies. They put people to work. They built, helped build the country. So you had government, industry, organized crime unions were partners for years, for years until the Kennedy administration. Came. They were partners for years and it worked very well and everybody flourished. And when you had numbers that were being done, people running numbers, you had housewives that lived in, in neighborhoods in each city that their job was to answer a phone, take down some numbers and write these slips out. And somebody would come by and pick them up to take them to the, to the head office where they were doing the banking for it. And those women got paid $150 a week cash money. That money went into the environment of the neighborhood, into the grocery stores, into buying things for their kids, for their family. Mm-hmm. When Nixon made it a felony to write numbers, that wiped all that out. Nobody stops and thinks about that. It's before credit cards and stuff where people lived on cash livings. You understand me? Yeah. So a lot of things that change. I've seen the changes coming and seen them go and how jobs disappeared and stuff like, you know, and, and it's time somebody tells the truth about this. And like I said, America, Canada, oh, we need to wake up. People well, need to wake up and smell the roses well, here. You, you know. Do you feel, though, if doing these, like saying like the miniseries and you want to put the truth out, do you feel that you're going to get censored at all because some of them don't want the truth to come out? No, because we're going to we've got the money to do it ourselves. That's the reason why I've held off on this for a while, because if you turn around to a network and give them that power, they'll put on the screen what they want to put on the screen. And that's not going to. And if you put the truth up on that screen, you'll have a miniseries that will go through the ceiling. The audiences you're talking about. An audience from 100 to 16. When I first wrote my book, I gave it to four high school kids. Just gave it to them to read. And a couple weeks later, they came back to me and they said, why don't they teach us this in school? You understand? They could go to any library and all the knowledge is there. You can read. There's books that with everything that we're talking about are there. The reality of what happened in economies is there in black and white. You just have to take the time to go and look it up. It should be being taught to people. I mean, you look at the illiteracy rate in my country here in America. If we go back to the 1950, we were about maybe 85 or 88 percent literate. We're lucky if we're 50 percent today. When I went to school as a child, if you failed a class, you were left back to repeat the class. You learned whether you liked it or not. Today, then they put the push system in where they just push people right through and you had kids in, sitting in 12th grade, they were lucky they could read or write. You had kids going to yeah, college. We have that going, system here, too. Well, you had kids going to college who were buying their way in, and they, they, they're lucky they could read or write, and they're in college. What they have done to people is unfair. How many people don't come out of their houses? They get on these computers, and they, they spend all day talking to each other on text, and nobody sees anybody face-to-face. And they wonder yeah. why there's so many scams going on. Yeah, we say that all the time, you know, even with the the younger generation now is even if you go outside and you look down the street and like there's no kids outside playing, they're all inside on like electronic devices. Or if you see them outside, they're on their electronic devices outside, not even looking straight. They're just walking, looking down at their devices. So nobody's being able to enjoy their life right now just because of all this technology that's come out. Well, it's just like this pandemic that's on now and they're saying you've got to be six feet apart. Well, the things that they're putting into what they want to do with a vaccination is going to label everybody so they know where you are at all times. You understand? They want to put a yep. chip on people. And they, yep. 
they could take that vaccine and stick it up their butt as far as I'm <laughs> you know? And it's like they, they say that the majority of the people that, that took flu shots last year all test positive for this virus. And this virus has a componentry of, of the AIDS virus in it. You know, and, and so it was devised, this thing. Now, they're saying there's a vaccine. They're going to put a vaccine out that's going to – there was no vaccine for AIDS. So how can – anything with the immune system, you you can't have a vaccine for the immune system. It ain't going to work. That's a lunch of hobby cop. That's just trying to label people. And Gates' family has been doing that since the 30s, trying to purify nations and stuff. I mean, that's all garbage, man. You know? Yeah. Another avenue that they're using right now is they're getting people to download these apps so that everybody can be tracked through their smartphones. They can track your behaviors. They're tracking everything already, and now they want to control even more. And a lot of people are pushing back on this, a lot of people, because, you know, a lot of people are awake. I hope people open their eyes and really stand up and say, you know what? It's time to take our freedom back, man. You know, let's let's stand up and be counted here before – you know, somebody else is putting our shoes on and we're not putting our own shoes on. You know, it's just. It's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a good analogy. It really makes you think, eh? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and it's just so and it's like the film industry, it can be utilized so well to tell the truth about what the hell is. Going. That's why I got in the movie business. It was a way to tell the truth about things. You know, and that's why this series is going to be monstrous. It'll be- well, I got to tell you, I can't wait to see this because I think if you guys get this out on Netflix and all these other streaming services, you guys are going to break the Internet. That's what I think. I agree with you. I think you're going to crush it. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I think it's, it's you know, the, the truth be told, when you have an audience, well, I mean, it, it, some of the reviews of my book on Amazon are, are kind of clever. There's an old guy from New York. He was 97 years old, and he, and he, he wrote a rule. He said, you know, reading this book, he said 75 to 80% of it is gospel truth because all the real names are there and all the things that were in the newspapers when I was growing up. He said, it's all there. And he said, I know it because I lived it. You understand? So you're talking about things where grandfathers are sitting, talking to their children, talking to their children's children, and it's going down of, of, of yes, we were there. When this happened, thank God somebody's telling the truth for a change. Yeah, that's right. And so many things are hidden that people really live, and they know that the media is lying about it. A great example is the Oswald situation, Kennedy's death. Lee Harvey Oswald was a patsy. He wasn't even in the window. He didn't pull any triggers on anything. There were 13 shots fired that day. Jack Kennedy was shot three times, not once. The one bullet theory that they sold, the media sold to people, is all bull. The they whole, run the narrative. Well, the whole thing, the way it was orchestrated, the whole nine yards is just, uh, I mean, read the book, you'll like it, I'll tell you something. You know what's scary, though, is how many people, like, even if you hit them with the facts, they don't give a shit. And they'll just believe whatever the hell comes out of That's the, the bought and paid for media. They're sitting in front of a television and they're brainwashed watching the news on the media. And what they don't realize is that the news is made to make awards. It isn't made to tell you the truth. Yeah, that's the ironic part of the whole nine yards. And people have been brainwashed. How many people do you know sit? They can't wait for the news to come on because they think that's going to tell them what's going on in the world. That's a bunch of bull. The craziest thing is when they get caught and people come up with the facts and say, no, these are the facts. This is the truth. And you guys are lying. 
they just blow it off and they just keep spouting the same crap over and over and over and over again. Because like you said, people will buy that crap because they've been indoctrinated into the system of just believing whatever you're being fed at that moment from the TV. It's just like, you know, Big Brother, you know, George Orwell, 1984, same kind of mentality, right? I've had people come back to me and say, well, you know, Jack, there's so many stories about this that I don't know who to believe. <laughs> and I said, you know, start looking in the mirror. At the guy in the mirror and understand where his life is going. And That's you better right. start believing that. Let me tell you something. Because the tragedy of your freedom being taken away is right there in front of your eyes. Yeah, the world is a big shit show right now and things are pretty crazy. But don't worry, even up here in Canada, there is the core demographic that just believes whatever the media is telling them. But everybody else, they're fully awake. They're watching. They're listening. They do their research. They don't watch CNN. They're looking into multiple different streams of information outlets, looking up their own research, doing the grunt work, like digging to find the truth. And people are aware of this stuff. They know what's going on. So to be honest with you, I don't know where all this is headed. I don't think it's headed in a good direction. But like I said, there's a lot of people that think like us and are aware to the fact that we're just being sold a bill of goods here and the numbers don't add up. And even with the censorship on the social media platforms from the doctors that you were mentioning, that they've come out and stated fact by fact. And then that, it disappears. Yeah. Or they're, they're saying, shut down. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. There's one doctor, she stood up, she said, they're probably going to come after me try to take my license and everything, but I don't care. The world needs to know what's really going on here. Because some people just have the guts to stand up and be counted because they just don't want to go to sleep at night knowing that they've allowed this to happen on their watch, you know? Well, I think it comes down to, you know, if you're going to go down, go down swinging, right? Don't be a patsy. My life, I'll tell you. <laughs> this interview is just a big eye-opener for a lot of people and just hearing from your experience, your history, what you see every day in your career, the things going on in the United States, how you related to Canada, the things that are going on in the world. It's really important to hear all these stories. And I'm just so glad that we could get you on today because it's fantastic. I got to tell you. Well, I, like I've lived in certain parts. I lived in Europe for 20 years, and, and I, I lived in the, in Ireland. I lived in the Isle of Man. I lived, you know, in Belgium. And I lived in Belgium when Belgium was a really neat country, probably the greatest food of all Europe. And now it's been taken over by Muslims. They're putting socialism there. You know, I'm watching all Italy. I'm watching countries being infiltrated, you know, like little bees coming in and turning things upside down the way they shouldn't be and disturbing everything. And it's very sad. I mean, look at London. I remember London. When I boxed in London in, in, back in the 60s, London was a great city. I mean, you're talking about wide open, man. You know, it was there were clubs open all. I mean, you could walk anywhere in London, any time of the day or night in safety. Women could in safety because the neighborhoods were, were taken care of by certain organized crime, if you want to call it that, but they protected their neighborhoods. You understand? Mm -hmm. And black cab drivers, this is a good example. Black cab driver, I don't know if you've ever been to London, but a black cab driver, yes. black cab drivers didn't have any glass between you and them. They used to talk to people, guys, in, and there, there was a great organization, you understand? And you could, call, you could hail a black cab anytime, day or night, boom, boom, boom. You can't do that today. They put the glass up because they were starting to be robbed in the 80s, you know, the changes that I watched coming, I said, my God, this is unbelievable. As a street kid, if I wanted to find somebody in London, all I had to do was tell a black cab driver, I'm looking. They had a network. They could find anybody. They had a radio network that was unbelievable. 
they spot somebody and they say, oh, he's over here right now. You want him? <laughs> yeah. You know, but all that has been taken away. You know, people don't walk safely anymore in, in cities. The neighborhoods are, I mean, I remember when there was no guns in London. Even the gangsters didn't carry guns. The famous Cray twins, they never publicly walked out. Ronnie Cray used to have Reggie. Reggie used to use a sword. He'd cut your head. You know, <laughs> it was a whole different, there was a whole different mechanism of things. Things were totally different, you know, and, just, and to watch the changes that have happened is very sad. But you know what, though? There are still a few countries in Europe, some holdouts, that basically pushed back against the euro and this whole one European Union bullshit thing that they have over there. Because the countries that did sign up for that, they're a complete mess. But, for example, you have countries like Poland and some of the other countries out there who took a stand and said, you all can take your shit shove it and go to hell and we will dictate our own future our own economy we'll watch out for our own security and we'll take care of our own people but they're still trying to turn them the way they did the euro they wanted to see another currency work in the world and the euro was actually financed by asia because they wanted to see another currency work so they could put a currency over there to unify their currency right but here you are in italy and you're having a cappuccino and it costs you 25 cents. The day the euro went in, all of a sudden that cappuccino costs you $1.25 because they based the economy of the euro on Paris and Berlin. And the cost of living was a much different scenario where there was industry in the country where you had countries like Italy and Greece and that were tourist countries where they make their money off of tourism. You understand? Mm-hmm. So to take and, and change the economy... To, to cost you 25 cents for something and the next day it cost you a dollar, that's a kick in the ass. At a certain point, you just say it's not worth it because with the exchange rate, you're basically paying like over two bucks for every Canadian dollar at a certain point. And so there goes your whole savings. So let's say the trip costs 1500 2000 bucks, food, transportation, you go out to some tourist spot. Next thing you know, you need to bring another two, three grand just to cover all your expenses in there. There you go. So then people just stay home. It's like a sucker punch, man. We're going to take another break to help out another podcast. Hey, everyone. I am Nick. And I'm Russ. And if you're looking for a podcast about current events that's well-informed, highly educated, and safe to share with your whole family... That's not us. Nope, it's not. But here at the Nick and Russ Don't Know Anything podcast, we have an opinion about everything and don't mind sharing it. That we do. New episodes every Wednesday and Saturday. Check us out at nickandrust.com. And find us on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and many more, including YouTube. Thank you, and I love you all. That was Nick and Russ from Nick and Russ Don't Know Anything. Make sure you tune in and hit that subscribe button. Tom, did you want to talk about anything else regarding any of the movies or the career backstories? Whatever you're comfortable with talking about, if you want to talk about your book or if there's anything that you want to promote on here before we go. um, Just feel free. Yeah, yeah, feel free to talk about whatever you want. If you go to familylegacythenovel.com, it takes you to the book and the book site and tells you everything about it and all that stuff. And it's... uh, and we're getting ready to bring out another book in another 45, about 45 days. So... We've got three more that we're bringing out. We're going to incorporate, like I said, a few stories. But the book is a great read. And it's an eye-opener. Because <laughs> you know, when I first did the book, I had to sit down with the government because they said, we will not let you publish this nonfiction. Just ain't going to let you do it. So I sat down. I said, well, so I changed maybe 15, 20% of it and put 
20, a little bit of fiction in there. And they said, that's great. That'll work because they're confusing people. And we just, as long as you're confusing people, it's okay. Now, where's the, you know, sensibility there, you know? So when I, people read it and they, and they live the history of it, they say, well, this is like about as 80% as foolproof as you're going to get of telling the truth about things. And it's, uh, so it's, and it's going to get better. The series is going to be a killer. Really going to be a killer. I can't wait to get it. You know, we're, if this pandemic thing hadn't happened, we'd already be doing it. Who are some of the actors that you were thinking of getting involved in this project? Any names that we might know of? Sean Penn, Jimmy Kahn. Oh, nice. There's a host of actors that uh, that have that would have key roles like Pacino, and they would do cameos. You know, uh, and it's going to make stars out of people because there's some young people that will make and and you can actually make a star out of somebody if you really do it correctly today. You know, and you can do it in six months' time this, with the social media, and that's been proven by Casey Affleck won a, a, an Oscar that he know didn't deserve at all, but God bless him. <laughs> But Amazon did that. They put that picture out. And actually, she should have got the Oscar. She did more in the movie than he did. It was, uh, you know, so the social media, you utilize it properly. You can make a star out of somebody in six months. You show their face and talk about them enough. People are going to want to see them. You know what I mean? And if they have any ability at all, then it's a home run. Well, Tom and I, we've been studying the social media now for a while, trying to see, you know, what kind of algorithms are out there and, you know, how we can best promote our podcast on all the different platforms and everything. And let me tell you, it's a game. You really got to be on your toes and you got to know what you're doing. But once you hit the sweet spot, then you just blow up, you take off. And hopefully we can find that sweet spot pretty soon. Hey, eh, Tom? <laughs> well, oh, yeah, you, take, you, gotta look at, you know, YouTube has become huge. Yeah. Absolutely. YouTube is now doing movies, actually. Yeah. YouTube's becoming, that's it. I mean, you can hit millions of people through them. And, they, and then Amazon and you know, four or five different outlets that combining them together. And once you, once something gets rolling, then everybody wants to play, you know? Exactly. Yeah. They want to jump on the bandwagon. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, I knew about that. You know, it's, it's a... <laughs> we wish you the best of luck with all those projects and all the work that you have coming out. And I'll tell you from just listening to the stories that you're telling us, man, I think a lot of people are going to be glued to the screens watching these series and just keeping tabs on all this stuff. I think you and I are going to be standing there with our money in our hands saying, take my money because this is, uh, this is exactly. really, this seems really, really interesting that uh, something to watch. It's going to be incredible. I think continued success and health. And we'll actually be watching very closely in the near future just to see this all take off. And it's going to be great to witness that and basically to get the story out, your story, the stuff that everybody's talking about, the truth, everyday life, the things that matter, the unfiltered, raw stuff that everybody needs to know about and experience. I think that's great. You got to stop and think of in the world that I come from. If I didn't have great teachers like Meyer Lansky and people that, that tutored me as a child, you know, all my dear friends that, that I grew up with did 30 and 40 years in jail because they wouldn't open their mouth. You know, hmm. they lived in neighborhoods too long. I was taught out of sight, out of mind. You know, go here, go there, move around. Don't get yourself caught up in where people can put you in the conspiracies and stuff. And it kept me out of jail all my life. And, you know, and, and I turned down huge money because all the money in the world isn't worth a day in jail. Trust me when I tell you. you know, so it's a 
people, you live and learn. And when you learn things and you see things change and you know why they change and you can really tell the truth about it because you were there, you know, it's going to make a big difference, I hope. You know, I just pray to God that we reach some people. And, and I just really, truly hope people open their eyes worldwide and say, you know what, I want my freedom back. How do we play this game now? Let's get down to the nitty gritty here. You know? That's right. Yeah. Well, thanks again for telling us your story and talking about your life and joining us today. And I'm going to just hand it off to Tom to wrap things up and anything else that you wanted to add, Tom? If there's anything else you want to promote, any social media channels, anywhere that anyone wants to check you out for your upcoming projects, uh, you have a chance to do that now. Anastasia Media Group is going to be the, uh, the forerunner in, in the studio and uh, and the pictures and stuff we're doing. So there's, there'll be sites up for that. Anastasia Media Group and, Fair, and Family Legacy, the novel.com is going to be carrying a lot of information. So it'll come out public, you know, we're, we're reaching out to you. What's got to happen here? We want to thank you very, very much for giving us the time today. Thank you. I'm sorry. Uh, I know yeah. you have. Or late, I apologize. No, no worries. No I know you, you probably have a busy schedule and for you to take time out to actually come on and talk to us. Uh, we really appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. You take All care. Right. Great day. Take care. All Thanks right. a lot. Thank, Thank you very much. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating for us as well. We appreciate it very much. Thanks, and we'll catch you in the next episode. Here we go now! Pop Jerky.